0: This is essential.
1: Essential. 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 essential
0: This is essential Audio.
1: Welcome to The Money Pot, our podcast at Money 2020. I am Rachel Morrissey, a content producer for Money 2020 USA, and I'm here with Elena Mosropian, a content leader for Money 2020 Europe. Hey, Elena. Hi, Rachel. So today we're just diving in. We're talking about a bit of a miracle of design and democratization, the digital identity and universal payment rails that were established in India, which have resulted in an explosion of creativity in fintech applications and changed the nature of banking in India completely. So, Elena, you spoke with the chief architect of Aadhaar, which is the name of the digital identity number.
2: Yes, I had the chance to speak with a brilliant person I admire, Pramod Varma, the chief architect of Adhar and UPI, the Unified Payments Interface of India, which is a payment rail system with a single open API that any developer can build on. These two initiatives are massively skilled, publicly-owned products, and I had questions about how to approach designing something at such a massive scale, what it has accomplished, and what they want to design next. So let's just start with why. Why did India make it a priority to create a national digital identity? Well, India has a population of 1.3 billion people speaking more than 20 languages. As you would expect, it's extremely diverse, economically and culturally and in education. 40% of the population had no birth certificate or proof of identity. And without proof of identity, I mean, how can you transact?
1: For example, in the U.S., It is rare not to have a birth certificate and you are immediately issued a social security number. This double identification allows you to verify your identity throughout your life. So getting access to public services, getting a driver's license, acquiring a bank account or financial services, registering for college, applying for a passport, all of them require having these identification documents. And we used to joke that the most handy thing we learned in college was the ability to recite our social security number.
2: Yes. So in India, 55 million people didn't have that and therefore didn't have access. Also, because of the economic disparities, India has a lot of public services, including agricultural subsidies and health subsidies. Because so many people didn't have identification, they were forced to use middlemen who arranged these things. That allowed for a lot of graft and corruption. Pramod thinks of it much more fundamentally.
0: Identity is a societal right that everyone must have that everybody in a society must have one or more identities to verifiable identities that they can use to participate in a variety of transactions um, interactions uh, as they do uh, in their life whether the interactions may be for education healthcare access to market opportunities jobs and so on
1: okay So making sure everyone has identity allows your population to gain direct access and not depend on third parties, making sure that the money is used where it was actually intended. So Aadhaar was created by legislation
2: in the March of 2016. Who did they get to create it? So if India is the model, I wanted to understand whether this was an undertaking best left to the government, who would be working in the public's interest, or to private companies who might have other motives, but traditionally work faster. So I asked Pramod and he said it was a combination.
0: It's not one or other. Tell me one, which country does not have a government identity or which country does not have a private identity. It's actually both. So in, in this case, what was happening is that uh, the authority, unique identification authority of India, uh, encouraged volunteers like us who have been practicing building large-scale transaction system in the industry Uh, to join uh, the force uh, and help help them out in terms of thinking through the design and architecture of the system. Of course, to build it and run it, we still needed uh, private players to come through. So we have private players who are supporting uh, our data center operations or uh, software building or uh, components of software building. For example, biometric components are actually procured from private industry. In the, some of the iris matching algorithms and so on, right? But the whole system is not owned by a private entity, it's owned by the government itself.
1: So they had government contractors who volunteered to help design this. And that's fascinating.
2: How did they approach designing adhar? When I asked Pramod, where would you even start to build such a large scale system? He broke it down for me.
0: It's a little bit of an art. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it's not algorithm. One well defined purpose. So, define the purpose. Why do that project even exist? Right? Why Why did we do that? Why are we doing that project? The reason of existence for that project has to be articulated. And immediately you articulate what we call the principles, the underlying principles under which it's sort of 10 commandments. Think of that way.
1: So, he began by outlining the purpose and goals of the project.
2: Yes. The purpose of Aadhaar was very clear. If identity is a societal right, then they needed to provide the ability to prove identity to their entire society. Their next step was to outline the principles. Pramod called them the Ten Commandments of the project. If anything conflicted with the purpose of the principles, it was rejected. What did he outline as the principles? There were several, but two primary ones stuck out. Inclusion is the first.
0: For example, inclusion was a constitutional thing for Aadhaar. Right? So, we, every, subsequently, all decisions we made had to be vetted against this constitution, right? Is it? Are you making a decision that is inclusive or is it going against the inclusion, right? Things like that. So, your openness was an inclusion, making sure entire system is open and not hostage to one technology and so on. So, we created what's called 10 commandments or principles of the system.
2: Since inclusion was the purpose, That was a fairly easy principle to adhere to. But the second one was privacy, which is hotly debated everywhere. Privacy can be very contextual. What is private to me may not be private for you. Also, there is a balance between privacy and the public good. For example, right now, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Several governments have turned to contact tracing to isolate individuals and groups that have been exposed. This sort of service of mass surveillance allows us to extinguish the virus. So I asked Pramod how they balance the principle with other aims.
0: Privacy is a fundamental right. And there's no question about it. And the entire architecture of financial movement, architecture, money movement architecture of UPI or data architecture, no, none of these architecture uses any central databases or any central system or any central identity system. That means Aadhaar is not attached. To any of the money movement or data movement, for example, right? So it is important that we are defining a federated architecture or decentralized and distributed architecture for with no centralized uh, uh, mechanism. So there's no doubt in my mind it has to be privacy-friendly designed at, as a distributed and decentralized architecture or what we call federated architecture. And then once you design it, you ask the question if there is an epidemic like covid is there a social obligation on our behalf to reveal that i have covid so that it is not my privacy my privacy is in turn overridden by a larger public good or societal good so that i don't spread it right
1: they have a federated architecture that only allows you to
2: access the data necessary to the transaction you're facilitating and the other method was to limit the amount of data down to what was necessary and make it temporarily accessible
0: and if the data is minimal and if the data is temporary and transient only during the covid and only during the epidemic time under a proper law protection law i think it is okay because it is only fair that you ask the society to be uh, not spread any epidemic outside and you give up the uh, right to privacy uh, during that short, short period with a minimal set of data, just necessary to deal with pandemic, nothing more. And then you discard the whole system. There's no new system, no contact tracing system required after the pandemic at all.
1: If you don't collect too much data, then it makes it easier to protect the privacy of individuals. So
2: how did they determine how much data to collect? This actually fits into the next design steps. After you have defined purpose and principles, you have to unbundle every step.
0: Once you know why you're doing it and what are the principles of doing it, the third step in my mind is to unbundle. So you end up unbundling the system as a whole into pieces of the puzzle that has to come together, then you go down to unbundling into even micro puzzles, micro pieces. So you start unbundling that. So you basically apply sort of a Lego block approach to unbundle the puzzle into pieces and pieces into micro. Once you're micro, you start designing. You don't even get to the design of that until then. Once the unbundling is to only understand what what all system services of sort needs to be built in, in at a micro level. Uh, that can come together to form full puzzle. Then you start designing each of them. And when you design it, you make sure the design is complying with the principles that you wrote.
1: So once you have completely unbundled every step, looked at even the micro details, you begin designing from the roots up
2: with security, privacy, and inclusion in mind. Pramod called it the blueprint of the system. And once they metaphorically took it all apart, they could also design for scale because this needs to apply to 1.3 billion people across all the languages and cultures. And he was clear that they should design for scale.
0: What works at scale is very different from scaling what works. So scaling what works is most people do. They say, oh, this is working for 100 users, this is working for 1,000 users, let's scale. They try to, They try to scale what works And in our mind, that never really is the right thing to do. We should always design what works at scale. We have to ask what works at scale, and then design it
1: for that. that is really the opposite of the approach we see most often. Usually when implementing new systems, a pilot is designed to test on a smaller scale, and then as
2: bugs get worked out, you scale up. But they knew that it wasn't optional to open only to small groups. Identity has been declared a constitutional right. You couldn't issue this to a small group without conflicting with that principle. So Pramod has a simple rule when designing for scale.
0: So the rule to deal with scale and diversity is actually simplicity. That means you remove everything that is not needed and keep the system so absolutely minimalistic and simple. And saying that all we do is identity and authenticate identity. Everything else is done by the ecosystem. So the only answer to large scale and complexity is actually simplicity of design. And of course, technology complexity exists, but that is the easy part for a lot of us because we are technologies and you know, building internet scale systems are done.
2: So in order to build for scale, they decided on four basic elements of identity.
0: Name, date of birth or year of birth, uh, gender, and India is a tri-gender, we have three genders officially. and address. So we have just four attributes, and of course, the biometrics to capture uniqueness.
1: So the technological
2: complexity is the biometrics piece. They went with a fingerprint, right? Right. In 2016, that was the best and most accurate technology. Now, they may opt for face recognition or eye scan, but that was the best option. Also, I asked if they would include anything else today.
0: I think it was very, very forward-looking uh, the architecture design at that time. But we could have accelerated a few things, right? For for yeah. example, we introduced a locking feature, so we, we people can lock their biometrics and lock their identity from any usage. They are traveling out and they don't want the identity to be open enough. So the like locking. So some of these advanced security features and uh, virtual identity, for example, we were in, we introduced subsequently. Uh, If we were to build it in 2020, those features
1: would have been enabled day one.
2: So he would go even further
1: to protect a citizen's privacy.
2: Yes, it relates specifically to what they are designing now, which is around data ownership. So that will be the third initiative. They built
1: Adhar in 2016, and that allowed them to speed up financial inclusion. I mean, they went from around 15% of the population having financial services to 85% of the population having access. That's about 45 years of development
2: squeezed into six years. That was due to Aadhaar, and then they built UPI, which is the Unified Payments Interface, using the same design thinking. First, they defined the purpose, decided on the principles, then unbundled every piece, and designed a universal payment rails that any developer can use. They have divorced the store of value from movement of money. Banks store money, but using the UPI, a third party app can manage the movement of money. And like we said before, that's led to an explosion of fintechs in India, providing payments, lending, and investing. Pramod also emphasized the simplicity of building on UPI and what that means for market competitiveness.
0: We only have one API that actually does authentication. Uh, We kept it so simple that we can actually scale. And then, entire solutioning. How the identity is subsequently used is done by the ecosystem, healthcare ecosystem, uh, banking ecosystem, and so on. They build applications on top of that. But we have uh, hundreds of banks all connected onto a single network, a single set of APIs, uh, fully interoperable in the country. And since 2015, early launch of UPI, 2016 is when big launch happened, everybody coming in. In the span of four years, we are doing 1.2 billion transactions a month on UPI, and this is all banks are connected to that grid, fully interoperable. And we have uh, local payment applications, we have SME applications. Why do we need so many applications? Again, goes back to the same reason to understand that India is not one country in that sense. India has so many diverse diverse cultures and uh, levels of people, different languages that. Imagine thinking that you only need one app to serve the whole billion people is actually utopian and wrong.
1: So fintechs building for all the specifics of a local population have access to the same payment rails.
2: They can afford to serve much smaller and specific populations. And they have to reimagine their value as well. They don't own money movement anymore.
0: Imagine what is the real value they're adding to that individual or to that family or to that business by providing value-added services such as uh, lending services value added such as insurance protection uh, education opportunities healthcare access to better healthcare there's so much value add that um, family or individual or a business uh, needs just moving money or just getting an identity is only a starting point i think there's so much more the industry can build and that's all left to the industry so the real startups have to build Uh, various value-added business layers for various domains. You know, we have startups who are building in transportation and logistics domain. We have people who are building it for SME domain and so on. When they build that, they have to ask the question, am I adding true business value or value to their life and their business? If so, they will pay you.
1: It is providing real faith in the marketplace to be more imaginative, and eliminating monopolies on systems that could stifle innovation and services. It's also allowing people to own their accounts instead of the financial institutions.
2: And that is where the third piece comes in, data ownership. His team is creating a mechanism for people to control their data more efficiently and make the market compete for their business.
0: Now we are bringing in the last layer of that, which is what we call data empowerment. Indians are asset light and data rich because we are second largest internet consumers in the world after china right and we are very 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 large population now connected to internet um may very large population starting to use smartphones so you have the right to access all your transaction tails and write your credentials so both credentials and data will be liberated from many many systems and you as an individual anybody in this country will have access to harness the data as an asset and use that for uh, better jobs, better lending offers, better uh, business uh, uh, discussions and so on. So I am usually, we want people to use the data as an asset. And to use data as an asset, you need two things. One, the law, the underlying data protection and data empowerment law that ensures the right to access my data uh, comes in. So that is already draft, bill is already in the parliament. So I am able to do, uh, to leverage my data as a asset in a consented, under the law, uh, through a set of data networks or data switches. And that is what is coming about this year. And this I think is going to take India to a level where no country has ever gone, where the Thousands and thousands of transactions and uh, data uh, footprints, data footprints that people are leaving behind, are indeed harnessable by themselves. And they can harness their uh, data themselves to better care, better jobs, better lending offers, and better uh, opportunities in their lives.
1: We've heard data called the new oil. Being asset poor and data rich is a great description. The population doesn't have a lot of ready wealth, but what they are creating is fuel for wealth development. Providing a system where they are the ones profiting most from their own data and not simply at the whims of others holding that data will create a
2: market competitiveness where the consumer really is the king. So Pramod Varma and his team have made sure to keep to really simple solutions that are created to financially empower Indian citizens. As they complete the data product, they're building a healthcare domain that it will tap into. That means that doctor's records can be shared by the patient to any doctor in the country, including a telemedicine system that will allow people in remote areas to get doctor's consultations right away. It will also tap into educational assets. So his team is really providing the digital cornerstones for a completely digital ecosystem.
1: Economy, educational base, healthcare initiatives, all in the future. We will see how many countries actually follow that impressive lead. So that
2: is it for this episode of The Money Pot. I want to thank our guest, Pramod Varma, the Chief Architect of Adhar and UPI, for speaking with me about this. Also, we thank our producer, Roland Boddenham. We're excited to see everyone at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam on September 22nd to 24th.
1: And we also look forward to seeing everyone in Las Vegas for Money 2020 USA on October 25th to 28th. If you like this episode, please leave us a review in iTunes. Also, please write us with suggestions for the show at podcastatmoney2020.com. Thank you for tuning in. This is Essential Essential Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.